You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, at last, British Prime Minister Theresa May has come up with a British negotiating position on Brexit. And we now know what we have to deal with. Or are we any the wiser? I talked to our London editor, Dennis Staunton, about what she said and didn't say. And to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid on the appeal that the Costa del Sol has for the Irish criminal classes. It's been described as the world's most expensive and exclusive networking event. Davos, a small resort in the Swiss Alps that once a year plays host to 2,500 of the world's most powerful and rich, while up to 30,000 look on. Suzanne Lynch has been dispatched from Brussels to rub shoulders with the global elite and give us a flavour of the occasion. First to London and Theresa May. There has been a common travel area between the UK and the Republic of Ireland for many years. Indeed, it was formed before either of our two countries were members of the European Union. And the family ties and bonds of affection that unite our two countries mean that there will always be a special relationship between us. So we will work to deliver a practical solution that allows the maintenance of the common travel area with the Republic while protecting the integrity of the United Kingdom's immigration system. May has spelled out in detail what she means by Brexit is Brexit in her speech to diplomats on Tuesday morning. Uh, But she makes clear that the UK does not intend to be either in or half in the single market. So we do not seek membership of the single market. Instead, we seek the greatest possible access to it through a new, comprehensive, bold and ambitious free trade agreement. In other words, a hard Brexit. Uh, She intends to be out of the customs union, but willing to have associate status as long as it doesn't inhibit her from concluding other trade deals. She regards immigration controls as the number one priority red line, and among other things, regards the common travel area uh, as, as a priority in the negotiations. But Dennis Staunton, were there any real surprises? And do we now know more clearly what she wants? It was all very general, but any hostages to fortune here? Well, I think that there was some clarity insofar as she was very explicit about saying that uh, that Britain does not want to be uh, a member of the single market. Now, this was pretty clear from various other things she had said over the last few months, that that's where uh, the logic of her her other statements was leading. But it probably is useful that she's actually said it very clearly. She also gave more specifics about her attitude to the customs union. And she said that uh, Britain would not remain part of the common commercial policy or the common external tariff of the European Union, although it would seek to have some kind of new customs arrangement, uh, which would mean that they could have tariff-free trade with the uh, rest of the European Union. She also made clear that she was open to continuing to pay something into the EU budget for specific programmes, but she said there would be no question of making of continuing to pay large sums into the EU budget. And she uh, finally said that uh, she was willing... Uh, you know, that she would seek to have some kind of implementation phase or a kind of a transitional arrangement so that Britain wouldn't fall off a cliff the day after it left the European Union. Having said all that, 
there was something about her tone which was very, very harsh. And so when she spoke about the idea that some people in Europe are talking about, about a kind of a, a punitive deal for Britain, she uh, effectively threatened the European Union. She said that uh, she would prefer to have no deal than to have a bad deal. And so she was willing effectively to crash out of the European Union without a deal at the end of the two-year negotiating period. And she also explicitly threatened uh, to create some kind of tax haven uh, off the, uh, the coast of, uh, of the continent of Europe by cutting taxes and basically taking retaliatory measures to ensure that Britain would remain competitive if it didn't have access to the single market. This is, this is what film Philip Hammond was hinting at the other day. Exactly. And he basically you know, he conjured up this vision of creating a kind of a pound shop uh, on the outskirts of Europe. And this, again, was an explicit threat that, uh, you know, if you don't play ball with us, we can also be unpleasant. From the Irish point of view, there was uh, the fact that she, uh, she said that she wanted uh, to make a priority of retaining the common travel area between Britain and Ireland. And she also said that she didn't want to return to the hard borders of the past, or at least to the borders of the past, as she put it. But there is a problem there because if uh, Britain does leave the uh, you know, key elements of the customs union, then it's very hard to see how you would avoid some kind of customs controls on the border between North and South. And afterwards, uh, speaking to, uh, to Mrs. May's spokeswoman, uh, she, she made clear that what they were looking at was finding some way of making these border controls or these customs controls as frictionless as possible, as she put it, and as unintrusive as possible, possibly by using technology. She does seem to minimise uh, the possibility of, of involvement in, in the customs union. Uh, but, uh, but I think there was a clear acceptance that there will be border controls, customs border controls. <sighs> Whether there would be some kind of customs controls. Now, this is an issue not only for the border in Ireland, but also uh, in, in terms of Britain's uh, relationship with the rest of the European Union, because a lot of uh, you know, manufacturers based in Britain, they've got supply chains which stretch all across the continent. And so obviously they don't want to have to go through a whole elaborate system of customs clearance every time a part comes from one part of Europe into another. And so they, I think they will seek to have as frictionless an arrangement as possible with, uh, where customs are concerned. But if, uh, you know, if the European Union and Britain have different external tariffs, then there has to be some kind of customs clearance, of customs control. And even if you look at uh, the border between Sweden and Norway, Norway is in the single market, but it's not in the uh, customs union, those are, are very uh, unintrusive by international standards, but they still actually do have customs uh, controls and they have uh, customs clearance and they do, they do still stop some trucks that are going across the border. The important thing, of course, is that this is a wish list, a shopping list, and sufficiently vague uh, not to be held account on. And it, it, is, it is going to go back to the Commons uh, after two years, but she made it quite clear that there would be no question of a running commentary. This is it, basically. We're not going to hear any more from her. Yes, this, uh, it was made very clear. This is the plan. This is what you're going to get. And, uh, and so between now and... Uh, uh, and the triggering of Article 50 at the end of March, uh, we're unlikely to get much more by way of details. I mean, I do think, though, uh, Paddy, that, uh, that uh, there are some hostages to fortune, and, there, and, and she can be held accountable, because uh, it is very clear that, uh, you know, by saying 
we're definitely coming out of the single market. We're definitely coming out of these parts of the customs union. We're definitely controlling immigration from the European Union. Uh, she may be able to uh, contradict herself uh, without upsetting uh, some of her European counterparts. But by, uh, if she does backtrack on any of that, it, there will be a very big political price to pay in Britain. I think also where the, uh, the vote in Parliament at the end of the process is concerned, a crucial question here is whether... Uh, once Britain starts the process of leaving the European Union, if it can unilaterally halt it. Now, that's something that, uh, that there isn't any legal clarity on. But if uh, the process of leaving the European Union, of triggering Article 50, is irreversible, essentially what, after two years, Parliament will have a vote on is to take the deal that she agreed or to leave the European Union with no deal at all. I was struck as you were saying earlier, by by the the threatening tone at the end of of her speech, but earlier on to there was a there was a slight condescension to uh, fellow member states, um, a, a sort of disparaging of their attitudes to internationalism, a sort of presumption that Britain was the only internationalist in the game. I don't I don't think this is going to go down terribly well. I don't think so, and I think it might also come as a surprise to a country. Uh, like France, with its uh, imperial history, and also to uh, a country like Germany, which is obviously one of the uh, great exporting nations of the world. Uh, but I think it does reflect uh, something of a mindset uh, in uh, in London, which uh, is not nothing new. It's been the case since before Britain joined the common market and all the way through its membership of the European Union, which is a kind of an exceptionalism, an idea that uh, somehow uh, that the British are really the only grown-ups in the room in Brussels and that, uh, that everybody else is really, uh, you know, that, that they're really dealing with, uh, uh, with people uh, who, who, don't, uh, who are not serious foreign policy players in the way that they are. Um, but I do think you're right that it probably won't go down terribly well, uh, you know, that particular Return. I also don't think it's necessarily uh, a very intelligent approach to take to uh, serious negotiations over the next couple of years. And indeed, the last time we heard the phrase truly global Britain being used, it was probably reference to the, the empire in which the sun never set. Yes, and there were quite a few references to, uh, you know, to, to some of the, uh, the former colonies. Uh, and there was, a, you know, there was a reference very early on to the Commonwealth. And so there is a certain uh, nostalgia uh, around the edges of some of, uh, of, of, some of, the, of the thinking around Brexit. Uh, but having said that, there's also, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, you know, a modern uh, economy as well. And, uh, you know, and, and, and those economic factors will play out as, uh, as the negotiations carry on. It is interesting to see that the immediate response from the markets has been positive. Uh, and the pound uh, rose uh, against the dollar and against other currencies immediately after uh, Theresa May stopped speaking. I think that's probably because of the fact that she said she would have some kind of implementation phase and so uh, at least uh, appeared to take the notion of Britain falling off a cliff in two years' time off the table. Thank you very much, Dennis. We'll be back after this short break with Guy Hershko from Spain. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. 
And now a flavour of the Costa del Crime, home and base to a good few Irish criminals, not least the notorious Kinahan clan. Our Madrid correspondent, Guy Hedgecoe, has been reporting on a very particular type of legal service for this niche market, run by a North of England former bank robber of Irish extraction, a man called Jason Coughlin, who has been nicknamed the Devil's Advocate. Guy, Coughlin is very explicit about his business and his background, extraordinarily so. Tell us about him. Jason Coughlin had a lucrative career in robbing banks in the northwest of England um, sort of a decade or two ago. Um, he spent 15 years in jail as a result of that, a total of 15 years in jail. And after his release from jail um, in England, he ended up in the south of Spain, as many criminals or former cr- criminals often do. It's a place that they often flock to. Um, and down in Spain, he found himself in prison yet again, this time not on charges of robbing banks, but um, on charges of extortion. And he was in prison and he found it very difficult to find, as he put it, decent legal representation when he was in prison. He didn't speak the language very well. It was very difficult for him to understand the Spanish legal system. So he ended up reading up on his case himself to understand the Spanish legal system, which is very different to the Irish one or the British one. Um, a lot. He ended up re- representing himself and getting himself out of jail. But he decided that there was a niche market there for people like him, um, that is, English-speaking expats who don't necessarily speak much Spanish, who don't understand Spanish law, but who find themselves in trouble with the law down on the Costa del Sol. Now, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people like, like that who find themselves in, in such situations. Um, and for that reason, it's known as the Costa del Crime. Um, but what he, he does is he's not a lawyer himself, a qualified lawyer. But he provides a legal service, a kind of liaison between um, clients who find themselves in jail and he puts them in touch with the particular lawyers or legal firms who he feels will best serve their interests uh, in their particular case. And then he goes on to follow those cases very closely um, until he hopes they are released from prison. And he's uh, had a a really flourishing business since he set it up just a few years ago um, on the Costa del Sol in Marbella. And and he has a strong Irish clientele. I, I gather he claims that there's no one else a paddy would g- give a call to. Well, that's right. I mean, he he comes from Irish extraction himself, um, as his surname suggests, um, and he has a it seems a very um, close affinity with his Irish clients in particular. Um, and he he says he has many Irish clients. Um, and I mean, one in particular who I met, um, a young um, Irish client, sort of saw him as a kind of former gangland idol um, and said, you know, that Jason Cogland is the kind of person that I used to read about when I was when I was younger, the kind of person I used to look up to because of his criminal career. Um, and so um, th- there's a real bond there, I think. Um, and he, he seemed to have many Irish clients. And, you know, as we know, there are many Irish who go down to the Costa del Sol. 1.7 million Irish went to, the, to Spain on a holiday last year alone. And uh, there are many Irish criminals who end up on the Costa del Sol uh, operating there as and well. Did this young man, he, he similarly has no uh, problem talking about his his personal vocation, which is a life of, of crime, and he's no pretense about what he's doing there. No, he, he was quite clear about it, that, that um, he is pursuing a life of crime down there on the coast. Now, that's not necessarily for all of Jason Coughlin's clients. Um, many of them, are, you know, I think are, are leading quite sort of quite straight, lawful lives. But in many other cases, these are people who are uh, pursuing criminal careers. And so uh, ending up in prison down uh, nearby Marbella or Malaga in that area is almost a sort of occupational hazard. As you can see, 
this becomes you know, quite a, a lucrative uh, business for him. You were talking to a local policeman about the, the situation there, and it's important to understand, I think, that this is not just a, a holiday resort as far as these guys are concerned. It's actually very much part of what one of them calls a superhighway for drug drug trafficking. It's it's a, located in a way that is uh, coincides with, with, with their work. That's right. I mean, there, there are obvious draws um, for... Irish criminals, which are the same draws as for, for any tourist, which is the, you know, the, the, the sunshine, the, the, the lifestyle, um, the food and so on. But what uh, criminals see down on the Costa del Sol are these extra draws, particularly drug traffickers. They look to, for example, the port of Algeciras, which is very near uh, Malaga and Marbella. Um, and it's seen as a major drug trafficking uh, port because it's bang between the Atlantic Ocean and uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So strategically, it's perfectly placed. Um, it's just a few miles across from uh, Morocco, which is one of the, the world's biggest cannabis producers as well. And then if you go a bit further along the coast of southern Spain, you come to Gibraltar, which is a tax haven. So, um, you know, as this policeman put it to me, this is all a very explosive mix, and it's, it's a, a real draw for criminals. Uh, and you've got to think as well that... Um, that makes it um, in incredibly attractive for criminals because they can kind of blend in there. There are so many of them down on the coast that it's, a, it's an easy place to sort of lie low and keep a low profile. It's also an easy place for them to, to mix with other people from the same, uh, the same businesses, whether it's drug running or, or, or running um, arms or uh, other, other kinds of criminal activity. It's very easy to make contact with people, but similarly, you can, you can lie low, stay in your villa and keep out of the sight of the, of the authorities. So that all makes it very appealing for these criminals. And indeed out of the sight of uh, other criminal gangs who might be your rivals. Thank you very much, Guy. And now to the snows of Davos, where the world's powerful are gathered this week for what their programme describes as a discussion of, quote, entrepreneurship in the global public interest, but actually of what Brexit and Trump all mean. Suzanne Lynch reports. As the train winds its way through the snowy valleys south of Zurich, the town of Davos gradually comes into view. This small, sleepy village is nothing special, but for one week every year it finds itself in the global stage as some of the world's most rich and powerful people descend on the Swiss resort. It's all thanks to Kai Schwab, a 78-year-old retired economics professor from Germany. He starts the event in 1971 as a kind of thinking for economics professors. Think the McGill Summer School without cocktails. 47 years later, it is still going strong and continues to attract some of the world's biggest economic brains and political leaders. Davos has long been self-aware of its reputation as the playground for the rich and famous. During the height of the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, the Forum was painfully aware of the discrepancy between the free market values it sought to celebrate and the failures of market-based capitalism laid bare by the financial crisis. Hurriedly, the organisers ran panels on responsible capitalism, the fight against poverty, and the perennial favourite, climate change. These themes continue to form a central part of the programme and arguably have done some good. Campaigners such as Mary Robinson and Al Gore have used the platform of Davos to successfully make the case for responsible business and environmentally aware capitalism. This year, however, the atmosphere is unmistakably different. Davos is taking place against a background of unprecedented public apathy towards the status quo and a visceral backlash against free trade and globalisation, all the values symbolised by Davos. 
A report by Oxfam, published on the eve of the summit, found that just eight men own the same wealth as 3.6 billion of the world's poorest people. It's a shocking statistic. Research by the World Economic Forum itself found that median incomes in 26 countries actually fell by 2.4% between 2008 and 2013. There's a sense here in Davos this year that the challenges of globalization need to be discussed and confronted. Events such as Brexit and the electoral victory of Donald Trump have made anti-globalization a political reality, not simply a fringe ideology that can be brushed away. Though he's not in attendance, the shadow of Donald Trump looms large over the event this year. His inauguration on Friday coincides with the last day of the forum, and a number of panels will discuss the future of America as the financial and political establishment nervously await signs of change from Washington. Similarly, all eyes will be on Theresa May on Thursday, when the British Prime Minister addresses the Congress two days after her keynote speech on Brexit. One of the big set pieces this year is from Xi Jinping, the first Chinese Premier to visit Davos. He used his keynote address on Tuesday to launch a strident defence of globalisation, warning other countries not to close their doors to trade. Away from the Congress Hall, there's still plenty of time for networking, though most of the exclusive parties take place in multi-million franc chalets tucked away high in the slopes, away from the main centre, well away from the eyes of prying journalists. Pop star Shakira and actors Matt Damon and Forrest Whitaker are among the A-list celebrities in attendance this year, though Bono is not attending. This week will also mark one of the final public appearances by US Secretary of State John Kerry, who grew up in Switzerland, and outgoing Vice President Joe Biden. The two men will address the Congress on Tuesday and Wednesday. There's something of a swan song about the appearances of two of the most senior figures in the Obama administration. As the world awaits the next four years in Washington and the winds of political change in Europe this year, the world epitomised by Davos has never felt so fragile and under threat. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Guy Hedgeco and Suzanne Lynch, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 